Friends, let us pray. God of justice and mercy, by your Holy Spirit, inspire us through your word and shape our lives according to your will. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Our gospel story, as has been alluded to already this morning, is the gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter, verses 10 through 17. Hear this gospel story. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eighteen years is a long time to be hunched over and unable to straighten your body to its fullest measure. Eighteen years is a long time to feel the pain, to live with limited mobility, difficulty breathing, and compromised functioning of a body that is permanently bent over. It's a long time to have this monkey on your back, to carry what feels like the weight of the world. Now I imagine the folks around the woman in today's story figured that this is the way it would always be. And I imagine she figured the same thing. 18 years is a long time to stare down at your own shadow, unable to routinely look someone in the eye and greet them face to face. How many things passed her by that she couldn't see? How many people wouldn't truly see her? How many couldn't see her for who she was inside, for who God had created her to be, and what she had to offer to the world? Chances are no one asked her what she saw. For in spite of her affliction, I imagine this woman saw things that others didn't see and couldn't see. The patterns on the stones or the different shades of soil under her feet. The tiniest of insects scampering on the ground. Or even the babies of the village 
crawling around her feet. I imagine she had every detail of her own feet memorized, the arrangement of veins and tendons, the shape and length of each toe, the creases around each knuckle. But chances are no one saw the value in that. Not being able to fully straighten up affected this woman's life far beyond her mere physical state. Chances are she went about her day, isolated from the community around her, treated as a mere bystander in the drama of daily life. But the cruel irony was that this bystander couldn't even stand up straight. And not only did her physical condition weigh her down, so did her broken spirit. Day after day, week after week, year after year, she never got a day off from the threat of pain and isolation and despair. This is the world of illness and health. It has psychological, social, and cultural dimensions, even spiritual ones. Dimensions that impacted not only her, but also her family and her friends. In a modern scientific world that is dominated by the medical model of discrete symptoms and causes, we forget this. But Jesus knew this. He knew this when he was teaching in the synagogue on that Sabbath day and saw the woman and stopped in order to call her over. With a pronouncement and the laying on of hands, the woman's bent-over body was straightened. But notice that Jesus did not say, you are healed, even though that was indeed part of what he accomplished. He said, you're set free. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't use the language of physical cure. He used language of liberation. And for those who are grammar nerds, the passive voice of Jesus' words matters. Because in the gospel text, that implies that God is the source of this work accomplished in Jesus. The woman was unbound to move freely, to take deep breaths, to look people in the eye, to greet them face to face, to recover her full humanity, and be restored to community. She was free to stand up straight and praise God, and it should be the end of the story right there. But it led to a confrontation. It upended the status quo. It upset the way things are supposed to be. You see, the status quo is a powerful thing for those who benefit from maintaining it. When things change, even for some good, it threatens those for whom the status quo works just fine. It can happen in strange ways. If, for example, the bent-over woman had a family member whose identity was unhealthily rooted in needing to be needed, her healing meant they wouldn't be needed anymore. And what then? 
If she could reclaim her own agency, whose position in the family would she displace? It can happen in strange ways in communities that highly value philanthropy like ours. Now don't get me wrong, philanthropy is a fine, fine thing. Money absolutely matters in the world of charity. And philanthropists are by and large well-intentioned. But it's also true that those who give the money have the ability to control the agenda. Philanthropy, without accompanying justice for those on the outside, leaves the status quo intact. But when justice liberates those with backs bent by the weight of inequity from needing that charity in the first place, the would-be philanthropist loses the outsized influence he or she once had, and there can be a real tension in that. Think about the power of the status quo in the debates surrounding the Rochester City Schools. Last year's Distinguished Educators Report concluded that the current system largely benefits certain adults in power, but not the children. But change the system to focus on the children first, then those very same adults may lose some position of privilege. You can see it play out in petitions and lawsuits and appeals. And meanwhile, thousands of children are waiting for a system that will free them to learn and to thrive. It was 400 years ago this month, in August of 1619, that the first ship carrying enslaved Africans landed on our country's shores. 20 or so shackled natives of what is now Angola arrived on the coast at Old Port Comfort in Virginia. Two of them were named Anthony and Isabella. At least those were the English names that erased their native identity. And 400 years later, people of African descent bear the backbending legacy of slavery that continues to shape and define our nation evidenced by the ongoing and systemic disenfranchisement of people of color. And the uncomfortable truth is that the status quo benefits most of us here this morning, especially economically. But that same 400-year-old status quo keeps us well-intentioned, though we may be, from seeing the world as those historically sidelined see it. We too need to be liberated from that which keeps us from seeing what we cannot see. And it helps me think I'm not so different from the leader of the synagogue in Jesus' day. He too had a vested interest in keeping things the way they were, because the Sabbath was the holiest of holy days. That's why there were Sabbath rules. And contrary to an unhelpful stereotype that often surfaces, those rules were well-intentioned. They were actually meant to help God's people observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
So when Jesus seemingly broke that Sabbath rule that prohibited work by healing the woman, it was a big, big deal. And as one scholar said, it's not necessarily that the religious leader didn't care about helping this woman, but rather that he believed a bigger principle was at stake, one that respected the primacy of the Ten Commandments. She'd already been hunched over for 18 years. Surely her healing could wait one more day in service to that principle. However, what that indignant religious leader didn't recognize and that Jesus interpreted differently was that the Sabbath was made to affirm freedom and life and not to restrict it. The gift of the Sabbath was the antidote to the Israelites' enslavement in Egypt, where they had no rest, no freedom, no life. And that's why he had to heal the woman that day on the Sabbath, because God's whole purpose for Sabbath was liberation from oppression. And it was necessary for Jesus' own God-given mission, found back in Luke chapter 4, to proclaim release to the captives and to let the oppressed go free. When Jesus declared the woman liberated, he did this for her without any prerequisites whatsoever. He didn't make it dependent on her own faith or even on the faith of others. He didn't even wait to see if she would come to him first. He gave it to her freely and joyfully, even though she didn't ask for it and maybe didn't even think she deserved it. We call that grace. Jesus saw the woman for everything that she was. He called her daughter of Abraham, affirming her identity as an heir of the covenant and legitimate member of the family. She belonged, not outside the margins, but inside God's ever-widening circle of inclusion. She belonged right there in the center, along with everyone else, finally looking at them and looking at Jesus face to face. Her bent over body lifted up, her back straight, her head held high. The thing about Jesus' liberating work was that it was about more than the woman's own personal deliverance, because what God did liberated her entire community too. Because if she couldn't look them straight in the eye, they couldn't look her in the eye either. If she couldn't see them face to face, they too were denied the ability to see her face to face. They had all been bound by the status quo. When she was freed, they were freed, and they could rejoice right along with her. The gospel assures us of God's desire to free us from every form of human bondage, whether they are the personal burdens of illness and disease and sorrow and anxiety, or all of the isms of oppression that plague our community. 
as affirmed in the theological declaration of Barman, written in response to the accommodation of German Christians to the Nazi party, and eventually adopted into our own Presbyterian Book of Confessions, through Jesus Christ, we are joyfully delivered from the godless fetters of this world to freely and to gratefully serve one another. We are now three weeks into this church's pre-interim time of transition. And one of the gifts in such times can be a renewed openness to seeing those places where we need liberation from some of our old, well-intentioned forms, not all or even most, but probably some, so that we can be in service to God's ever-widening circle of grace in this new time in this place. In this period between what was and what will be, we can ask God to help us see those in our community that we haven't seen or noticed before. To look them in the eye with kindness. To greet them face to face as old friends. And to welcome them into community. Because if the gospel has anything to say about it, that just might be where we will find our liberation. Amen. <laughs>